Today I want to talk to you about really experiencing stories, resurrection stories firsthand. You know, there's a lot of us that uh, look at other people and look at their stories and think, oh, wow, God's really doing a lot of stuff in their lives. How come God never does anything in my life? Well, I think we all have to know the resurrection life and power of God firsthand, not secondhand. We can't know it through our parents. We can't know it through our friend. We can't know it through our pastor. We have to know it personally. We have to experience the resurrection power of Christ in a very personal and unique way. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just historical. It's not just philosophical. It's personal. It's something that happens to you. It is the central miracle of all Christianity. It is the central miracle of Christianity because it punctuates what we believe. Christ dying on a cross, taking our sins, the sins of the entire world upon himself, and then being placed in a tomb, but then rising again, destroying death in the grave, destroying sin, and giving us life. The resurrection gives meaning, it gives perspective, it gives power to our lives. It is a defining miracle and a life-giving force. And it is unique to Christianity. There are a lot of leaders of religions that have good teachings and, and nice ideas. And, and sometimes people, you know, in American culture, we like to dabble a little bit here and dabble a little bit there. And we take a little bit from this place over here and this philosophy and this concept over here. And then we mix it all together and, and then we call it Oprah. <laughs> Christianity is unique because the leader of Christianity, Jesus himself, went to the grave and came out again. There's something so important for us to embrace with this. And really, the scripture, we have to believe the scripture. We have to trust it. We can't just pick and choose what we like about the scripture. We've got to really believe what Jesus said. We've got to trust it. A really amazing pastor named Tim Keller, great author, he wrote a book called Reason for God. I want, you to, I want you to look what he said. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? doesn't matter what Jesus said. He said, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because it is a powerful miracle. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want you to get a little piece of paper out, get a pen out, and I want you to write down a few ideas. Because the truth is, when I stand up here and I begin to share the scriptures, what we, what we want to happen is for God to speak to you. Not just for you to hear my words. And I want you to be ready to write down some ideas. You can use your worship guide to write down some ideas. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 is where we're going to start. It is the earliest account of the resurrection that we have. And the Apostle Paul, he writes to uh, the people at the, in the city of Corinth, and here's what he says. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Notice the words. I'm passing on to you what's most important. Here it is. Here's what's of the most value for you as a Christian. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Notice those phrases, just as the scriptures said. 
The Bible is trustworthy. Jesus' words are trustworthy. Verse 5, he says, he, has seen, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. You know what that little phrase is about? This is about the Apostle Paul and his experience with Jesus. We call it his Damascus Road experience. He was on the way to the city of Damascus, and he was persecuting Christians. And God appeared to him on this road, knocked him off of his horse, blinded him for three days, began to speak to him. This is what Paul is referring to. He experienced the resurrection life of Jesus personally. And every one of us have to experience it personally. But here's what I want you to see out of this passage. Because it's not... Some people have to get over the historical facts, over the issue of resurrection. Well, I, don't, I know I haven't seen too many people rise from the dead. I'm not sure this really happens. Let me tell you, it does happen. It happens even today in countries around the world and even in our own country when people pray and ask for Jesus to heal people. It happens. I know several people who have witnessed it firsthand, but it, the critics... They tend to downplay this resurrection as legend or a fairy tale or some kind of just false story that kind of grew over the years. You know, there was a story about Jesus, and, and, and then as the years went on and as people began to write about it, then it was exaggerated. That is not the case. Here's why. Every historian agrees that Paul's letter was written. This letter, Paul's letter was written 5 to 15 years after the death of Jesus. You know what this means? This means that it was close enough in proximity. It was immediate. They were telling the story, and he writes this letter recording the story about the resurrection, how 500 people saw Jesus. 500 people at once, most of whom were still alive and could be counted on for corroboration. Those people were still alive. They're still walking around. You couldn't write this if it wasn't true. People would have called you on it. Paul's letter was written to the church to be read aloud and therefore was a public document. Actually, it was to be, to be uh, shared with churches in different locations. So it was a public document. It was out there. Paul was inviting anyone who doubted to go to the actual eyewitnesses if they wished. He was putting it out there. The, the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome. You know, what, you know what that did? It created roads to everywhere in the world. And those roads made it easy to travel, easy to go ask the question. And here's one thing, one other thing it did. It made it easy for the gospel to spread. But here's the question that critics have to answer that they usually don't. What was it that caused the dynamic spread of Christianity as we know it today. What, what is it that caused the spread of people who believed in God and Jesus Christ as their Savior? What was it? What catalytic event? It was the resurrection. It was the reorientation of Jewish people first, of the Messiah coming, and then Gentiles as well. It was the spread of the gospel 3,000 and 5,000 at a time. What explains this? What explains the martyrdom of the disciples, of the apostles? What explains that they were willing to give their life for this? It was hope of resurrection. Now, many of us today, we tend to, we maybe look back at the resurrection as a nice miracle back there. 
Some of us look forward to the resurrection. Forward to resurrection after we die. We're all going to be resurrected and we're going to go live forever with Jesus. We put it out there in the future or we put it back there in the past. But I want to challenge you to see resurrection life and power in your life today. I don't want you just to look at it in the future, but know that it is resurrection power for the here and the now. Look what Romans 8.11 says. Romans 8.11. I'll put it up here on the screen. You can just look at it. You can write it down. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life. Everybody say life. He will give life to your mortal bodies. The, the body that's dead, he'll put life in it. He'll put life in your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Jesus was resurrected, but he wants you to experience it yourself. He wants you to have firsthand knowledge. He wants you to have a personal experience. Each of the first century believers experienced this resurrection firsthand, and I want to look at some of their stories, all right? I want you to turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to look at three characters, three figures whose lives were transformed by resurrection power, resurrection life. And I want you to see their story. And beyond that, I want you to see yourself in their story. Let's see if Jesus might reveal himself to you today. John chapter 20. And we're going to read about the first character we're going, to, we're going to look at. is Her name was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. And she was a, a really interesting lady. And first, let's read just kind of the context for her discovering the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, that's a little parenthetical statement that I, I want to draw your attention to. John, the apostle, is the one who wrote this letter. And so somehow, I don't know what's going on with him, but he wants us to know that Jesus really loved him. <laughs> he wants to remind everybody that he's the disciple that Jesus loved. He doesn't name himself, you know, he doesn't want to be full of himself. But he talks about how Jesus loved him. And so you see it here. He was running to Simon Peter. She was running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I don't know if John has a complex. I don't know what he wants us to know that Jesus loves him, and he wants us to know that he's a really fast runner. So he includes it in the story. He's like, Peter was running, but then I outran him. And I got to the tomb first. And so they're running to the tomb. See the story. Mary has told them they're running to the tomb. He bent over and looked in the, in the into the, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, <laughs> notice one more time, behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. That's Peter. He just barrels through. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up 
by itself, separate from the linen, as if someone had gotten up and taken it off and laid it down. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. I want you to underline those words. He saw and believed. He witnessed it personally. But then this curious, curious verse, verse 9 says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. When you think about it, it's not all that far-fetched, is it? Somebody has risen from the dead, but it doesn't compute. You're not used to people coming out of their grave. You stood there and saw him being beaten. You stood there and you saw the nails go into his hands and into his feet. You saw the blood pour from his side. You can't, you can't imagine that this could be true. Here's the crazy thing. Jesus had told them over and over again. If you know anything about the accounts in the Gospels, Jesus was telling them. They all knew the laws and the prophets. They knew of the, of the messianic prophecies, and yet they couldn't see it right there in front of them. And why? Because resurrection life re reorients your world. It changes, what, it changes what you think is possible. And here we see that the disciples are right in the process. They're right in the middle of the process. They're still trying to figure out, to make it work. Verse 10, then, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and, and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? It hadn't registered. She wasn't quite there. She was still trying to make it make sense. She says to the angel, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Have you ever felt like you couldn't quite compute the miracle working power of Jesus in your life? I have. I don't quite get it. In fact, I haven't seen Jesus, so I don't know that he's really alive. That's what Mary was thinking. Verse 14 says, at this, they tur she turned around. Oh, sorry. She says, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. So here's Jesus, and he's standing there. She's crying to the angel, and Jesus is standing right behind her. I think that happens to me and you all the time. Jesus is right there, and we don't see him. He's right there near us, and we can't find him. We don't see him. And then look what happens. He says, woman. He said, why are you crying? Same question. <laughs> why are you crying? Now, who is it you are looking for? Okay, now Jesus is just messing with her. <laughs> I mean, think of it. Jesus, if he's going to be there, all he could, what he could have done was he could have said, hey, I'm right here, Mary. <laughs> well, hello. <laughs> He didn't do any of that. He stood there, and he kind of he messed with her. <laughs> Woman, why, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Maybe I can help you. <laughs> we don't think a lot about Jesus and his personality, but Jesus had personality, and it's right here. <laughs> Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. She still thinks he's dead. 
And Jesus said to her, watch this. Jesus said, Mary. He called her by name. And in that moment, her eyes, big as saucers, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, master, you're here. Now look, there's a couple things I want you to see about Mary and this interaction. Number one, you need to know why this was such a big deal. Why was Mary crying so much? Here's why. In the Gospels, in Luke 8 and in Mark 16, they both tell about how Mary was delivered from seven demons by Jesus. Jesus cast demons out of this woman. The darkness of the world had closed in on her. She was controlled by a spirit, an evil spirit. I know some of us, we don't see this around very often. It's all over the world. The, the, the deceptive spirits in America are much more subtle. But make no mistake, the darkness of this world is real. It is true. You have an enemy. He wants to dominate you and he wants to destroy you. He was destroying Mary Magdalene. And Jesus came and prayed over her and cast seven, seven demons. Not just one, seven. This lady was messed up. She was messed up and she was so grateful to Jesus for rescuing her. She had experienced her own resurrection and she couldn't believe that Jesus was gone. Here, she becomes, now I want you to see this, she becomes the first witness before anybody else. This woman who seven demons were casted out of her becomes the first witness to Jesus and his resurrection. He shows up and appears to her first. I love this about Jesus. You know why? Because he always breaks through cultural barriers. You understand that women of that day were not respected. They were not listened to. In fact, in a Jewish court, a woman's testimony was not even allowed. Why? Now listen to this. Why would, why would Jesus choose to appear to a woman first? Why would she have the first story that was, she was responsible? You can see it in verse 18. She's responsible to go tell all the men. Amen, all the women said. <laughs> she wasn't respected in her day. She wouldn't have been heard in her day. And yet Jesus chooses that. I think that's how Jesus does it. He, the scripture says he chooses foolish things to confound wise people. He chooses weak things to shame strong people. This is how God works. And listen, if, if the writers of the Gospels had wanted to actually make sure the story would be perpetuated, in other words, that the resurrection story was really told well, they would have erased the woman being the first witness. That wouldn't fly. They would have changed it to a man. But they didn't. They left it. They told the story as it was. Why? Because it was true. Much easier to perpetuate the Gospel story and resurrection power of Jesus if you just change the characters a little bit. They didn't change the characters. It's true. You can trust the scripture. So I want you to see Mary, and I want you to see yourself in it. I want you to see Mary standing there, looking at the grave clothes. I want you to see her standing there, crying, wondering what's happened to Jesus. And then Jesus 
does something amazing. He speaks her name. In the middle of her grief, in the middle of her sadness, in the middle of her struggle, I want to tell you that just like Mary, just like Mary, you and I can be freed from darkness, chains, bondages. We are freed by resurrection power. If you're overwhelmed today, you're oppressed, you just feel like you're just, everything's heavy, everything's a burden, life is just dark, you need resurrection power. You need to trade in your grave clothes. Leave your grave clothes at the tomb and let Jesus fill you with resurrection light because the truth, the truth is Jesus is right near you. He's standing right near you. He's right there. You just may not see him yet. And he's about to whisper your name, Mary. He's about to whisper to you. And I want you to open your ears and listen. This is the story of Mary Magdalene. Continue with the story. Let's look at verse 19. If you look at John 20, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, they were thinking, Jesus has been killed. They might come and kill us. He said, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. <laughs> okay, the doors are locked and Jesus shows up in the middle of the room. Don't you love how Jesus is messing with them again? He comes in like Star Trek. Hi. He shows up in the room and this is the most annoying thing. Look what he says. Peace be with you. Well, stop scaring me. Jesus keeps doing this over and over again. So he appears to all of the disciples, and he showed him his hands and his side. But go down to verse 24, all right? Verse 24, look at this. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So he appears to all the disciples, but Thomas wasn't with him. So the other disciple told him, we have seen the Lord. I'm serious. He's alive. It's incredible. We've seen him. Look what Thomas says. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger wherever the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. This is where we get doubting Thomas. You ever heard of that phrase? I think Thomas gets a bit of a bad rap. I don't know that he's as doubtful as we want to think he is. Here, let me show you. Turn over a few chapters to John 11. John 11. It's just to your left. Nine chapters. And look what it says in verse 7. Verse 7 says, Then he said to his disciples, Jesus saying this, Let us go back to Judea. Verse 8. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Here's what the disciples are saying to him. They're saying, Jesus, don't go where the people are mad. Don't go where they want to get rid of you. <laughs> it's like, you, you need to be careful. Now, what Jesus is referring to, he's going to Judea, and you know why? The story is about Lazarus. It's about the resurrection of Lazarus, and he's going to see Mary and Martha, who are good friends of his, and the disciples are saying, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is dangerous territory. I'm not sure we should go. So Jesus waits a couple of days, and then he goes. Lazarus dies in the meantime. Notice what Jesus says. If you drop down to verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. 
Jesus is getting ready to do something. He's getting ready to demonstrate his resurrection power that already lives in him. Look at this. Um, he says, but, I, but let us go to him. Verse 16. Then Thomas, called Didymus, same guy, said to the rest of the disciples, look at this phrase. All right then, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is like, okay then. If this is the real deal, let's go. Let's give our lives. Let's go to the dangerous territory. Let's make it happen. And the truth is, the Lazarus story, the resurrection of Lazarus, that was the turning point in the story of Jesus. That was the thing that made the religious leaders so angry because people started following Jesus from everywhere when they heard that someone was raised from the dead. It was a resurrection story that perpetuated the cross. It, it was the resurrection story of Lazarus that made everyone really want to kill Jesus, all the leaders. But the masses were following him, and Thomas says, all right then, let's go, let's put our lives on the line. See, Thomas wasn't as much a doubter as he was a person who wanted it to be true. He wanted it to be real. He wanted to give everything he had for the sake of the gospel. He didn't want to be a skeptic. He was a realist. He was a realist. He wanted it to be real. Now, I know a lot of you are optimists and pessimists, and the pessimists always want to tell people, I'm a realist. <laughs> but we all know that you're just pessimistic. We all know that you're a little skeptical, right? This was Thomas's personality. He was a little skeptical. Have you ever wondered about God, about his people? Have you ever been skeptical about the church? about what Jesus is doing in the world, about what this Christian thing is anyway. You're not alone. In fact, look back in John 20, and we'll see how Jesus handled this. Look, John 20, go back just a few pages. Look what it says. So he said, unless I put my Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He shows up, and he says, his phrase, he always likes to say, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, drops to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. Thomas was the first to embrace and to articulate the divinity of Christ. He was not only Jesus, but he was Lord. He was Christ. He was God. Thomas wanted to see where the, he wanted to see where the nails went into his hands. He wanted to see where the spear went into his side. He wanted to experience it. He wanted to see the real thing. He wanted it to happen to him. And so Jesus accommodated him. If there's one thing I want to challenge you today, if you're like Thomas, you see yourself as a skeptic, you see yourself as questioning, what is this all about? What's really happening? Can I tell you to pursue your doubts? God's not afraid of your 
of your skepticism. He's not concerned with it. I want you to pursue your skepticism. Let Jesus reveal himself to you. Let Jesus show you himself, who he is, what he's done. This is what happened to Thomas and Thomas believed. It's an incredible process. I want you to see how God is not afraid of your process. Jesus revealed himself to all the disciples, right, a week earlier. And then what? It takes a whole week for Jesus to show up again? What was he doing? Well, he's hanging around revealing himself to people. But he didn't reveal himself to Thomas right away. It took Thomas a week before it, it happened. God's not afraid of your process. It's okay for it to take time. Thomas saw the scars. He saw it, and he believed. The third story I want you to look at is the story of Peter. But the story of Peter, we've got we've to get a little bit of context. So I want you to turn over to Luke 22, and this will finish with this, this character. You've got Mary, who was full of darkness and full of pain, being freed by Jesus. We've got Thomas, who was a, a skeptic, who, who doubted that this resurrection thing actually happened. Jesus revealed himself to him. And then we have Peter, who was really the leader of the, of the disciples. He was the one who always was bigger than, than life, huge personality, always trying to do the thing that he thought Jesus wanted him to do, not afraid to express his opinion. In fact, at one point, he expressed his opinion so strongly to Jesus. He says, Jesus, this isn't how it's going to happen. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus calls Peter Satan. It's a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan. <laughs> Look at Luke 22, verse 54. We'll, ca we'll catch up on the story. First, verse 54, then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. And she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. Verse 59, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Peter was the leader. He was the guy. Jesus called him the rock. He didn't look like the rock right now. Yeah, he was the rock. But he doesn't look like the rock right now because he's failing. In a moment of trial, in a moment of testing, he fails miserably. Jesus warns him about it. He dismisses it. He says, Jesus, I'm going to go to death with you. And yet in the moment of trial, he fails. Have you ever felt like Peter? Have you ever felt like people were watching you and looking at you and you were full of confidence and full of faith and yet when the moment of testing came, you, you fell? 
I think we can see ourselves in this story. Look back to, back to uh, John 21, and then we'll finish right here. John 21, I want you to see this story. Verse 1, it says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples were together. And look what Peter says. All right, this is awesome. I'm going to go out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, all right, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Hey, this is curious to me. Here's a question I have for you. Jesus has been resurrected. He's appeared to them in locked doors. What is he doing? Aren't there more important things to do than fishing? Here's what I suspect was happening. Peter was so sorrowful. He thought that God's purpose for him had died because of his failure. The only thing he knows to do is to go back to fishing. The only thing he knows to do to do what he knows best, fishing. Unfortunately, he's not a very good fisherman. <laughs> if Jesus has re revealed himself to you, if you believe that there's resurrection life, then what is going on in Peter? Why is he sitting out on a boat not catching anything? He was consumed with guilt. He was consumed with his own failure. I want you to see what happens here in verse, four, verse 6. Early in the morning, Jesus stood at the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This is, a, this is a story that's already happened. And as soon as he says it, they do it. And look what happens. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And as soon as that happened, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said, Peter, said to Peter, It's the Lord! It's the Lord! He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. That's one of the funniest scenes I've ever read in the Bible. He's not dressed. He's working hard, but he's going to jump in the water, so he puts his clothes on. I think what it's about is reverence, respect. It's the master. He puts his clothes on, then jumps in the water, and he swims to shore. Look what it says. In verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus is so nice. He's very thoughtful. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. You could see him on the, on the beach. There's a little fire there. He said, come on, bring some of the fish over. Let's cook it. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread one more time and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Fishing 
represented Peter's old life. Fishing represented Peter's life before he met Jesus. Something had happened to Peter by his denial, and he didn't know how to fix it. But what we see in the next few verses is Jesus speaking to Peter and saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me as much as these guys? Do you love me more than these guys? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He asks him a second time. Jesus responds to him, then feed my lambs. Peter doesn't get, what are you saying? What feed my lambs? What are you talking about? He says, do you love me, Peter? He asks him a second time. He says, Jesus, you know I love you. And Jesus responds, feed my sheep. A third time, Jesus is trying to drive home the point, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, his, the, the scripture says his feelings were hurt. Why? Because he's emotional. He's all wrapped up in what's gone on in his life. He doesn't really know what's happening. He's trying to figure it out. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. What was Jesus saying? I don't want you to go back to fishing. I want you to be a shepherd. And it is Peter who in Acts chapter 2 stands up on the day of Pentecost and he begins to preach. And the Spirit of God came upon him and we see 3,000 people believe on that day. Can I just encourage you that no matter what failure has happened in your life, no matter what decision you've made that's been awful, no matter what you've decided in the past, Jesus wants to establish his purpose in you, but it, it must have resurrection power associated with it. You might think God's plans for you are ruined because of your failure. You might think that it's over for you. you. You can't do what Jesus originally wanted you to do. It's a lie. It's the lie of the enemy. It's not true. God's purpose for our lives is stronger, is more powerful than any of our mistakes. It transcends our mistakes. Here's, here's what I want you to see. The problem in each of these cases, Mary, Thomas, Peter, is they have to give up what they think. They have to get, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying they have to be stupid. I'm saying they have to be willing to surrender to something greater than themselves. They have to be willing to surrender to a power that's greater than what they possess. That's resurrection life. And resurrection life is not just about really nice church people. Resurrection life is not even necessarily aimed at those people. It's aimed at people who are dead, dying, broken, failed, stuck, overwhelmed, dark, consumed. That's what resurrection life is for. It's not for the perfect. It's not for the gifted or the skilled. It's for people who need Jesus. So people who need Jesus someone to come and rescue them. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads right now? I want you to listen to the voice of God's Spirit, maybe talking to you like Jesus talked to Mary. When Jesus spoke Mary's name, I want you to just close your eyes just where you are. Don't, don't worry about people walking around. Just everybody stay steady, stay still. And I want you to consider Thomas and his struggle to believe. I want you to know that Jesus understands that and he's okay with your struggle. 
but he wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to show up in, your lo- in the locked rooms of your heart and reveal his sacrifice and his love to you. You might be like Peter and everybody knows you're a Christian, but you've failed and that failure hangs over you like a heavy fog and you don't know what to do, I'm here to tell you resurrection life is available for you. Just like Jesus reinstated Peter and and shared with him his own life, Jesus wants to do that with you today. This is how he works. This is what he does. And so if you're here and you can see yourself in these stories, if you can see yourself in the story of Mary or Thomas or Peter, and today you want to make a decision, a commitment to the work of Christ in your life. You want to decide, I need resurrection life. I need resurrection power. Maybe it's been a long time since you've been in a church. Maybe somebody, a friend brought you or a family member. Can I just tell you that God is whispering your name? He's whispering it. He's calling you. He's saying, son, daughter, I want you to come and be filled with my life and my power. Leave your grave clothes behind. Look at the scars. See that I'm living and I'm alive. Don't go back to your old ways of life. Do what I called you to do. My purpose in you must remain. He's calling you. So if you're here, and I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. But I want to give you a chance to make a decision and to make that commitment. So maybe it's the first time for you that you're realizing you need a relationship with a God who acts this way. A God who acts like Jesus and you're realizing for the first time or maybe it's for the first time in a very long time you want to make a decision you say pastor please pray for me on this Easter Sunday I want you to just lift your hand up in the air right now all over the room just shoot your hand up in the air if that's you if you see yourself and you want me to pray with you yep I see you back in the back way back in the back back here right in the middle anybody else over here to the side anybody else over here way on the side yeah, just with your eyes closed and with your, with your heart open, I see you here over on the side. Anybody else? Over here, way over here on the side. If you're wanting to make the commitment to Christ, okay, Jesus, come into me. Wash away my failure. Wash away my foolishness. I want to believe. I don't want to be a skeptic anymore. I want to believe. Anybody else? I'm just going to wait for a moment. One more moment. Anyone else? Yeah, this is the greatest day. I see you. This is the greatest day to make this decision because it is Easter 2012, April 8th. You'll know this is the day that you made a decision that resurrection life came into you. Come on, all over the room, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Everybody's saying it out loud. It's not the words that really make the difference. It's the faith that's in your heart. So I want you to pray these words with me. Everybody say, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for freeing me from the bondage, the chaos, the struggle, the darkness. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for going my own way, doing my own thing, resisting you, I need you. Come into my life. Let resurrection power change me. 
make me a new person. I receive you now. I receive your forgiveness. And I thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray for every person who prayed this prayer and that you would seal its work, seal the work by your spirit, cause them to understand what you're doing. Reveal more and more of yourself as they go out of these doors and help them to share it with someone else. Help them to tell somebody what happened in their own heart today. Father, I pray that you would walk with them on this journey. Continue to reveal yourself, not just in this moment, but in the moment later this afternoon, tonight on their bed, tomorrow morning when they get up. Lord, walk with them, I pray. Let resurrection life come alive in them. I thank you for this. We thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.